So where does the curtain call fit in, right? Anybody wondering, like, what's the deal with the curtain call? Uh, raise your hand if you have ever been to a major theatrical production. And by major, I mean it could be a kid's play, it could be something down at the, uh, you know, at a big theater in a big city or just at an elementary school. And, you know, these people work and they prepare and they plan ahead and they practice and they rehearse. And then it's the night for the big show and they go out and they present what they have been working on. And at the end, if there's little kids, whether it's good or not, but if they're adults and you paid to be there, if it's really good, the crowd just goes nuts, right? And they start applauding and they're so excited and everybody is saying thank you and a job well done. And then the cast and crew come back out on the stage, right? And the curtain parts and they are standing there and they call that a curtain call, right? Well, Jesus made a curtain call too. And the good news today on the Sunday after Easter, is that the tomb is still empty. That that is not just something we can celebrate on Easter Sunday. We can celebrate that every day and every Sunday after Easter as well. And so this new series, we're going to be focusing on John chapters 21 and 20. 20 and 21, 21 and 20. The very end of John. As John presents the good news of the resurrection, he takes some extra time and he presents three specific interactions. And I believe that there is a purpose behind those interactions. There's also rich symbolism. And the reason that I decided to call this the curtain call is that at the end of Mark and Matthew's accounts of Jesus's death, they include a very important detail, a very significant detail. As Jesus breathes his last, both Mark and Matthew tell us an interesting detail that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom into two pieces. And previously, this was one solid curtain, a very large curtain in the inner part of the temple that separated that inner part of the temple from the holiest of holies or the most holy place where one priest went once a year to make a sacrifice. And the symbolism, scholars tell us, is that as that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, it was symbolic of the way to God being made open to everyone through the person of Jesus Christ. That this old sacrificial system was now obsolete. And you can read more about that in Hebrews 9 and 10 in particular. It's a subject of much of the New Testament that we now have access to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so his sacrificial death on the cross made a way for us. And so when Jesus made his curtain call, ironically, nobody was expecting it. Nobody was standing at the tomb cheering, waiting for the the stone to be rolled away and for Jesus to come forward. It happened sort of unbeknownst to most people because they weren't expecting the curtain call. They weren't expecting the resurrection. And we talked about that a fair amount last week. But they thought the show was over and they were filing out of the auditorium and trying to get on with their lives or pick up the pieces of the lives they had left behind in order to follow Jesus. And so when Jesus makes his curtain call, Nobody was really expecting it. And it's interesting, it wasn't just a curtain call. It was also an encore, right? You've been to a concert where everybody wanted at least one more song, maybe two or three, and they're not going to quit cheering until the band comes back out and plays one or two or three more songs. Maybe you've been in that setting. Well, Jesus came and he didn't just make a curtain call, he made an encore. He had some more work to do. And he used his time 
following the resurrection and the post-resurrection appearances that he made to do some very specific things. And I believe that they accomplished some very specific things. And they moved people from where they were to where he wanted them to be. And so looking at three of these post-resurrection appearances over the next three weeks, we're going to see Jesus and Mary Magdalene this morning from John chapter 20. And then next week we'll look at Jesus and the disciples in John 20 as well. And today we'll see how Jesus moves Mary from deep, deep sorrow to exceedingly great joy. And next week we'll see how he moves the disciples from fear that was keeping them almost in hiding to a bold, courageous faith that sent them out into the world. And then on Mother's Day we'll look at Jesus and Peter, where Jesus moves Peter from a disgrace to a disciple maker. And I'll be honest, just up front, I I almost did this in reverse order so that we could end with Mary Magdalene on Mother's Day, but I thought that's just going to be confusing if we don't do this in chronological order. So we're going to do Mary today, and all you guys, you just got a two-week notice that Mother's Day is in two weeks. So plan ahead. Don't drop the ball. Now you're really in trouble if you drop the ball because I reminded you. But today I want to look at John chapter 20 and I want to look at verses 10 through 18. So if you have one of our pew Bibles that are in the seat, uh, you can pick one of those up and turn to page 1686. 1686. And uh, here the context is that, that John has just shared the good news that the tomb is empty. And we'll pick up in the story here and I'll read through it once and then we'll uh, pause for a moment and set a course for the rest of our time together this morning. But in John 20, verses 10 through 18, we read these words. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? Well, they've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, please tell me where you put him, and I'll get him. But Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and saw Jesus and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And so this morning, I want to model something that I've talked about before and I've mentioned before. Uh, because sometimes as a pastor, I, I get to encourage you to do something, but I don't always get to tell you how to do it. And one thing that I have done consistently over the four plus years that I've been here is encourage you to read your Bibles, to read your Bibles on a regular basis, to study your Bibles and see what God's Word has to say to you. And today, I want to take the time to show you how. 
In Scripture, uh, there are, we're told that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the dividing of joints and marrow. So God's Word is alive and God's Word is active. And if we will give it our time and our attention, it will speak to us and it will show us and become active in our lives and reveal to us what God's will is for us. So I'm going to model for you what some people have called inductive Bible study, where you you take the Scripture, you take the Word of God, and you begin to ask questions of the Scriptures as you study it. You're trying to answer these questions. And there are three primary questions that I believe, this is how I was taught, and I share with you, uh, that we are trying to answer when we do inductive Bible study, when we take the Word of God and we ask it, what does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? And so these are tools that you can do. And I'll kind of model this for you. It's another uh, kind of tie-in to our Banding Together journals, our Banding Together groups. They take this journal, which has a reading plan that walks through about a chapter or two of Scripture every day. And the idea is that we would pray and say, God, help me to focus on two or three verses that you really want to say something to me about. And then we do what's called a SOAP journal, S-O-A-P, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. The Scripture corresponds to what does it say? We write down what the Word of God says. Then we make observations. We say, what is, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that means. We ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how questions of God's Word and trace out the answers. And then we say, well, what does that mean and how does that apply to my life today? That's the A in SOAP, the application portion. And we finish with prayer. And so we're asking these questions and we're prayerfully doing this and we're reading slowly and carefully and we're paying attention to details. And we may even want to accumulate some resources that help us in answering these questions. Good study Bible, maybe a commentary, are great resources as you study God's Word. There are some great ones that I highly recommend and use on a regular basis. The first is the ESV, English Standard Version Study Bible. It's one of the best study Bibles I've ever come across. The Life Application Study Bible is also very good. There are a host of wonderful resources, but a good study Bible will help you answer like 90% of the questions that you ask of a text. And then there are really good commentaries. My favorite for like a general use would be Warren Wearsby's commentary on the New and Old Testament. If you go and look for these, you'll find, man, that study Bible, that's like 40 bucks. Well, guess what? So is a golf lesson, right? This isn't a hobby, okay? And sadly, most Christians, people that identify as Christians, spend more time on social media and the bad news that is pumped into the world through cable and newspapers and everything else, and they spend more energy and resources on their hobbies than they do on studying God's Word. So we can change that. You can fork over 50 or 60 bucks for a good commentary or 40 or 50 bucks for a good study Bible, and it will help you understand God's Word. I came across a a quote that really got me thinking. It was kind of convicting, so of course I wanted to share it with you, right? Aren't you excited? It's from David Kim. He says, the Great Commission will not be fulfilled with our spare time or our spare money. And I thought, ooh, that's true. The Great Commission, when Jesus tells his people to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you, that's not going to happen with our spare time 
and our spare money. It will happen with intentionality. It will happen with sacrifice. It will happen when we get the Word of God in us so deeply that we cannot help but serve and expand His kingdom through our lives, through our neighborhoods, through our workplaces, through our families. And so as we do that, God's Word is the greatest resource that we have in understanding what His will is and how we can be a part of it in this world. So the first question that we want to answer, and I'm just going to kind of model this. This will be like a a crash course on inductive Bible study and sort of the process that I use often as I'm studying the Word for my own uses, but also when I'm preparing sermons. And uh, we ask that question, what does it say? What does it say? And so I would recommend a smaller passage if you want to do inductive Bible study. We're going to do this with nine verses today. You might just pick two or three and really ask God to help you understand everything that's in there. But depending on how much time you have, maybe you can do nine or ten, or maybe you can do a chapter. In verse 10, we're told that the disciples went back. Well, what does that mean? Like, when it says the disciples, what disciples are we talking about? And sometimes you need to look back. Sometimes you can look down in the footnotes. In this case, if you go back and read verses 1 through 9, you'll see that it's Peter and John that come. That Mary came in verse 1. She's introduced. She comes, finds the empty tomb, goes and tells Peter and John. John, who's the author of the Gospel of John, makes sure we know that even though they had a foot race, it was John who got there first, right? And now, in verse 10, Peter and John are leaving. But Mary is staying. I find that interesting. Take note of that. Just kind of chew on that a little bit. We're told in verse 11, but Mary stood, Mary stayed. She stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. This is Mary Magdalene that we're talking about. She's identified in verse 1. She's also identified in verse 18. And I find it interesting that she stayed longer. She stayed behind even though Peter and John left. Mary stayed She wanted to be right there. Verse 13. They asked her, these angels, Woman, why are you crying? And she says, They've taken the Lord away, and I don't know where they've put him. That's the same thing that she said to Peter and John up in in the earlier verses. She's repeating verse 2. She doesn't know about the resurrection. She doesn't know what we know as we read this. She's in real time. And part of inductive Bible study is often just to put yourself in the story, to put yourself in the place of Mary or in the place of Peter or in the place of John or in the place of one of the guards or in the place of a bystander, a fly on the wall. Verse 15, Jesus is standing before her, but she doesn't recognize him. He's speaking to her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've taken him away... Tell me where you've put him. She still thinks Jesus is just missing. She doesn't know that he's alive. So that's just an example of some things you should go through. You could notice, make observations in the text, and notice, here's what that says. That's unique. That's interesting. That stands out to me. Then you move on to the next one, and you start to say, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that, is there, is there some significance to that? Is there some symbolism to that? Again, this is where a commentary or a good study Bible will be very, very helpful to you. As you answer, what's that mean? What's the point? What is the deeper meaning behind that? Verse 12, there's an interesting detail I could have pointed out under what does it say. In verse 12, it tells us that two angels were sitting where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Does that strike anybody else as an interesting detail? One at the head, one at the foot. John goes to some lengths to make sure we know they're not sitting together in the middle of the bench. One's at the end. 
and one's at the, or one that's at the head, one's at the foot. Well, my ESV study Bible told me that that is probably pointing to the mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant, that it was sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, and that there were two angels, one on each end, and they had their wings spread over that mercy seat, and it directs you to Exodus 25, verses 17 through 19. So then you could go and look there, and you say, oh, wow, there's some significance to that. They were sitting on the ends, like the angels in the Old Testament. There's sort of a, a throwback there to that. Continuing on in verse 14, where she doesn't recognize Jesus. She's not expecting him. And as we ask, what does that mean? Well, wonder what she was expecting. Well, she was expecting a gardener. She was in a garden. The last time she saw Jesus, he was coming down off the cross as a lifeless body, beaten beyond recognition. No wonder she didn't recognize him. No wonder she thought it was a gardener. And the question that he asked her in verse 15 echoes the question that the angels asked her up in verse 13. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? That question, if you've been reading through the Gospel of John, leading up to this might stick in your mind. Say, who is it you're looking for? That echoes something. And again, a footnote relates that this is an important question in John's gospel. Back in John 1.38, when Jesus interacts with the disciples for the very first time, it's Andrew and another disciple, we're not quite sure which one. He asks them, who are you seeking? Who are you looking for? What are you after? It's an important question in the gospel of John. And then in John 18, verse 4 In the Garden of Gethsemane, when a mob comes out to Jesus, the first words out of his mouth are, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? So there's there's a theme that's running through the Gospel of John. We forget sometimes how intentional these Gospel writers were with the way that they structured these Gospels and the way that they opened them up to us in the story behind the story that they're trying to tell. And so a resource, you can go on YouTube and search for, uh, somebody help me out. I just lost the name. Bible Project. Thank you. Bible Project videos on each gospel. And they'll show you all these things that, that occur within the text that point to this or to that or the purpose behind the gospel writer. So just go to YouTube. Search for Bible Project on John. There's probably two because most of the, Bi- the Bible Project videos break the gospels into two different videos. And you find out that's a really important question in the gospel of John. What are we seeking What is Mary seeking? And then in verse 16, did anybody else catch that even though Jesus has spoken to her, it's when he says her name that she recognizes him. All he has to do is say one word, Mary. Mary. And that points us back to John 10, 3 and 4, where Jesus is explaining that he's the good shepherd, that the good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. She recognized who he was when, she, when he said her name. Said, oh, that's Jesus. And we can read in between the lines now because in verse 16, I'm sorry, in verse 17, he says, don't hold on to me. So obviously she's holding on to him now, right? There's a meaning there in verse 17. She's holding on to him now. And she cried out, Rabboni, which is the, the, there's three Hebrew words for rabbi, for teacher. There's rab, which is kind of a general 
context of a teacher speaking to a large group. Then there's rabbi, which would be the teacher that you've selected to be your primary teacher and follow them around. And rabboni is like the primary, premier teacher. It's a sign of deep, deep respect. Acknowledging him as the great teacher. And he says, don't. Don't hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. So he's saying, don't cling to me. Go tell. Don't cling. Sing. Go sing what you have heard. Go tell people what you have heard. Go tell them that I'm going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Does that catch anybody as a peculiar way to state that? What does it mean that Jesus says, my Father and your Father, my God and your God? Well, again, a commentary is really helpful. A commentary makes the point that Jesus had a very unique relationship with God. He was the only begotten Son of God. But he had also thrown open the way to God. That we can interact with God as he interacts with God. That we can be a part of the family of God. That he's not just Jesus' Father and Jesus' God. He can be our Father, our God. We can come to him with that relationship. And John 1.12 says that to all who did receive him, receive Jesus, receive his teaching, to all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to be called what? Children of God. So again, he's saying this has been done. The curtain has been torn in two. The gates of heaven have been thrown open and you can relate to him as your father. Not just me relating to him as my father. And so those are some ways in which we can work the text over and ask, what does this mean? What does this mean? What's the point? What's the symbolism? What's the meaning behind this? And finally, and perhaps the most important question, it really needs the first two in order to to accomplish it, but how does this apply? How does this meaning apply to my life? How does this word from God apply to my life? How does it apply to you? How does it apply today? And sometimes I'll ask God, God, how am I going to be different this afternoon because of what I read this morning? Or I've said here, how are we going to be different on Monday because we came to church on Sunday? How are we going to be different each day because we spent time with God in his word each day? And so there's a number of application points that come out of this text for me personally and for us corporately. Verse 11, do you stay after when others leave? Mary saw her sorrow turn to joy before anybody else's because she stayed. She stayed after. She wanted to be close to Jesus. She wanted to spend extra time just in the place where Jesus was. She wanted to get to the bottom of this mystery of where he was. She didn't wander off. She stayed. She desired proximity to Jesus. You see, we see that in Mary's life leading up to this as well, that she followed Jesus. She followed Jesus all the way to the cross. She stayed when others scattered. She stayed when others left on the morning of the resurrection. And her sorrow was turned to joy before anybody else's was. Mary got something special because she stayed when others left. And her sorrow was turned to joy before others were because she got the joy of sharing this good news with others first. She got to be the first herald of the good news of the resurrection. Do you think about that? Because she stayed. So I think there's an application point there. Do we stay when others leave? I shared a quote a couple of weeks ago that many find Jesus necessary, but not desirous. They find him necessary for salvation, but not desirous for doing life with him each and every day. I think Mary points us to somebody who found Jesus very desirous. She really wanted to be in proximity with him. 
A second application that comes out of this and related to that is this question that we see sort of culminating here. What are you seeking? Who are you seeking? What are you pursuing, Mary? What are you looking for? The angels ask it and Jesus asks it. And I have shared this before, but I really believe it and I believe it more and more. What you look for, you'll find, especially as it relates to a relationship with Jesus. If you are looking for a deeper relationship with Jesus and you order your life around that pursuit, you will find it. If you get closer to Jesus than you have ever been, you will experience grace and joy and peace that you have never known before. What you look for, you will find. And you'll find it earlier. And you'll find it stronger and longer. What you look for earlier, what you find earlier. Now, I've shared this illustration before, but when you stay somewhere long enough, you've got to recycle some of your uh, illustrations, right? And because I've become a little bit more of a bird nerd, this one has taken on special significance for me. But I love paying attention to birds, and I love seeing birds, and I like seeing the unique characteristics of each bird. And I wonder, why did God make that bird that way and that bird that way? And to illustrate this point that what you look for, you will find... There are two birds that come to mind, and the first is a turkey vulture. How many of you have ever seen a turkey vulture? How many of you would say that the turkey vulture is hands down the ugliest bird God ever made? Look at that sucker. That bird is ugly, right? There is nothing beautiful. Like, a mama doesn't even love that bird. Like, they're like, boy, you're ugly. That's an ugly bird, isn't it? But did you know that that bird is ugly for a reason? That God created that bird specifically. Like, he's ugly for a purpose, Because you know what vultures do, right? They're scavengers. They don't hunt. They look for dead stuff. They soar high. That's the only time a vulture is ever beautiful because they're flying so high that all you can see is that massive wingspan. You can't see that ugly head. You just see those broad, wide wings. But when they get down on the ground, their head is specially designed and their beak is specially designed to bury themselves in dead stuff and go to town. And that's what they eat and that's how they are sustained. And that hole is actually right behind the beak, helps them breathe while they're buried in the dead stuff. And this relates to what you look for, you will find in this way, that there are vultures in your life. There are vultures in most churches. And they fly around looking for rotten, dead stuff and they bury them heads in it, and they talk about it, and they share it, and they gossip. And they're usually negative, and they're usually angry about something, and they usually have something to complain about. There are vultures in your life, and there are vultures that are looking for something nasty to roll around in. But there are also hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are beautiful. Aren't they? Look at the hummingbird. Hummingbirds, I think, are some of the most beautiful. They have these iridescent feathers. They have these tiny, petite, little sleek bodies. They're just so beautiful. They are specially designed to flutter around, finding beautiful things and drawing the sweetness out of them. So hummingbirds fly around gardens, and they look for flowers, and they have a, a special beak that's long and narrow and slender, and they have, beats that, or they have wings that can flap Dozens of times per second so that they can hover in one spot. And they use their long beak to reach into a beautiful flower and pull out the nectar. And there are hummingbirds in your life. There are hummingbirds in every church that I've ever been a part of. There are people that are just so positive, 
Sometimes you want to say, come on, there's got to be something wrong in your life, right? They're just so positive. They never complain about anything. They're the encouragers. They're the cheerleaders. They're the coaches. They want to draw out the best in everybody they interact with. Because what they look for, they find. They look for beautiful things. They look for the sweet stuff, and they find it over and over and over. And so the question is, which are you? And which one do you want to be? And which one do you want to be around? Because what you look for, you'll find. And when we're looking for good things, we'll find them. And when we're looking for a deeper relationship with Jesus, we'll find it. And when we're looking for more of his power in our lives, if we're looking for it in his word, and if we're looking for it in service to his kingdom, we'll find it. And we'll find deeper significance and deeper impact. And so that brings me to the last point here as the worship team makes their way back up to the stage. That inductive Bible study is really of little value if you don't do what it says. If you ask those three questions, what does it say, what does that mean, and how does it apply, and then we just close the book and go on with our lives, we're missing out. We must trust that it is good and obey what it says. We've got to do it. James, the brother of Jesus was skeptical. He didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until after his death, from what we can tell. And then he became a pillar in the Jerusalem church, and he wrote the book of James. And he was a big deal in the early church. And he said something very important in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. He talks about being doers of the word, not hearers only. If all we do is look and answer the questions, but we don't do what it says, then we're missing the most important part. We have to do what it says. So here's a powerful prayer that you could write down. We're going to pray at the beginning of our Bible reading and ask God to focus our attention on what he wants to say to us from his word. And then at the end, when we've asked those questions and we've answered those questions, we're going to pray a prayer like this. It says, Lord, thank you for your word and for helping me to understand it. Now, what do you want your servant to do? How do you want me to be a doer of your word, not just a hearer? What do you want me to do? And that might look something like, Holy Spirit, please help me too. And then you fill in the blank. Holy Spirit, don't let me move on from this moment without being different. Don't let me forget this this afternoon when I've got that meeting with that person. Don't let me forget this tomorrow when I have the situation that I see coming up. And your word has just informed me of that. In this case, it might be, Lord, Holy Spirit, please help me to be a hummingbird today. To get in the habit of being a hummingbird. For looking for beautiful things. Looking for the sweet things to draw out. Spreading joy, just like Mary Magdalene. Turning my sorrow into joy because I set it at the feet of the cross and allow you to transform it into something beautiful. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the Holy Spirit which comes alongside us. Whenever we look long and lovingly into your word, Lord, you illuminate it. You, you bring it to life. Help us to desire you and to desire to understand your word and to desire to apply your word to our lives on a regular basis. That we would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would be more like you, Lord. Help us to hunger and thirst for your word, for your holiness, for your will to be done in us and through us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray.